please take your seats. If you had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, and if that wasn't tough enough, you were also facing utter ruin for yourself and for your family. And if, as a result of you seeking the Lord wholeheartedly and tearfully, he answered your prayers for deliverance from disaster and death, how devoted to the Lord would you be for the rest of your days? Talk about faith-testing trials. This was by any stretch of the imagination a huge trial that Hezekiah went through. That's exactly what we read happened to him in Isaiah 38. This is circa 701 BC, and as John mentioned, he was the king of Judah at the time. They were under threat from Sennacherib, which we thought about last week. But there are some huge lessons for us here to learn from Hezekiah's heart and the situation that uh, we see recorded, not just in 38, but also 39. Let's ask God to speak. Heavenly Father, this is your word written about a king that reigned over your people a long, long time ago in a distant place. So, Lord, we pray that you would minister to us, that we would see ourselves in this passage, but supremely we would see the Lord Jesus. So minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's just walk through the text to give you the the context again. Uh, Hezekiah was terminally ill, uh, chapter 38, 1, and uh, I always find his pastor's visit uh, quite humorous. It was short and not so sweet. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die, you will not recover. I will remember at London Seminary, we spent a whole day on pastoral visiting of people who were ill in hospital. And Isaiah 38.1 was not the go-to text on how to visit people who were terminally ill in hospital. But that's how this pastor visits and cares for um, this guy in his congregation. So it was a short and sharp and not very pleasant pastoral visit. And understandably, Hezekiah prayed and wept bitterly. Verse 2, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Miraculously, the Lord heard and answered both his prayers for his deliverance from death and from the destruction of his nation, and from the despair that they were under. And amazingly, the answer that God gave, and the assurance that God gave, was that he would give the Lord a, he would give him a sign. Verse 7, the promise, verse 6, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Verse 7, this is the Lord's sign that the Lord will do what he has promised. He actually made, just think about this, he actually made the time clock of the cosmos go back 10 hours. He reversed time as a sign that he was going to do what Hezekiah prayed. It doesn't get any better than that. 
Or does it? No wonder he was keen to share his testimony in church next week. And we read his testimony and his vow that he makes publicly to love and adore and praise his prayer-answering saviour all the days of his life. Look at what he says. Let me just highlight two of the verses. We'll come back to those a bit later. But let me just highlight two of those verses. Here he is giving his testimony. It's a writing of King Hezekiah after his illness and recovery. What does he say? Verse 15. But what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. Therefore, I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Verse 17, surely it was my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Verse 20, the Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments, how long? All the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. So, why is it then, after such amazing grace that is poured into his life, does Hezekiah cozy up to the Babylonian Empire without consulting the Lord or without consulting Isaiah, his servant, in order to, as he thinks, secure his future and in the process become so self-centred and hard-hearted? Because that's what Isaiah 39, 1 through 8, records. Why is it? Let me push the question slightly more closer to home. Do you imagine that you or I would be any different to Hezekiah? If you think for one second, oh, I would never turn away from the Lord who had so wonderfully and miraculously saved me, let me point you to this terrifying verse on the screen behind me from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We considered last week, looking at chapters 36 and 37, that faith-testing trials are our lot in life. Faith-testing trials are our lot in life. Faith-testing trials teach us to pray well. And faith-testing trials reveal God's love for us in a unique and beautiful way. All of that is true. But there is much more to learn as this account that Isaiah records shows us. So this is faith-testing trials part two. And in Faith Testing Trials Part 2, we are being taught three more vital lessons about our own hearts, the hearts that we all have and the help that we all need. And here are the three lessons. Number one, faith testing trials come in all shapes and sizes. Number two, faith testing trials expose how fickle our hearts really are. And number three, faith-testing trials point us to the king we all need. Faith-testing trials come in all shapes and sizes. 
trials that literally push us to breaking point, like illness, like facing utter ruin, which we saw in chapter 36 and 30 through 38. Faith-testing trials that drive us to our knees to search our hearts and seek and find our God like never before. Because that's what we saw last week. Faith-testing trials teach us to pray well. Here we are in Isaiah 38. Let me turn you again to verses 10 through 17. I said, Hezekiah, I said in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who now dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, and he has cut me off from the loom. Day and night you made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, like a lion he broke all my bones. Day and night you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or thrush, I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked at the heavens. I am being threatened, Lord, come to my aid. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, he is, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. He was literally pushed to the breaking point and he cried out like never before to the Lord. He wept bitterly, he cried passionately and miraculously God heard his prayers. That's one kind of faith-testing trial. And many of us know something of that in our lives at this time but there is another kind of faith testing trial and this is probably a more dangerous kind of faith testing trial it is the trial of where we are left alone with a choice to live by faith or to live by sight. And that's what we see happening in Isaiah 38. The writer to the Chronicles makes this comment in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 31 regarding this incident, and he gives us an insight into the ways of God and into Hezekiah's heart and into our own hearts. 2 Chronicles 32, 31 reads... But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him, that's Hezekiah, about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, must have been public knowledge, must have been international news. When the envoys came, read these terrifying words, God left him to test him and know everything that was in his heart. What does that mean? teach us it teaches us that prosperity and peace can be more deadly 
to our walk with the Lord than pain and suffering. It teaches us, secondly, that we have fickle hearts, that when push comes to shove, we default to walking by sight rather than by faith. For sight, read faith in me, rather than faith in the Lord. Amos chapter 3 verse 3 reads, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Here was Hezekiah, and we have just read in 37, 38 pardon me, that he had agreed to walk by faith with the Lord all the days of his life. In chapter 39, we now find him agreeing to walk by sight with his new friends from Babylon. You see, faith-testing trials come to us in all shapes and sizes. But the most testing are when the Lord gives us prosperity and peace because they expose how fickle our hearts truly are. Secondly, let me just open that up for you. Faith-testing trials expose how fickle our hearts really are. Here we witness this godly king flip-flopping between faith and sight. And this is not a standalone incident in the Bible. This is a recurring theme that is an expression of how our own hearts function. This shows the dysfunctionality of our hearts. And it's not a pretty sight. And it's in the Bible to show us what we're really like. As we said this morning, I lie to me about how good I really am. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20, which is the contest on Mount Carmel, the prophet Elijah, we read in 1 Kings 18, 21, went before the people and said, How long... Will you waver between two opinions? The ESV says, how long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And in the New Testament, the correlation passage is in James chapter 1. And the context of James chapter 1 is consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face, what? Trials of many kinds. Many kinds. And he talks about the encouragement, how faith, you know you're in a trial, is when your wisdom runs out. And when your wisdom runs out, you turn to the Lord in prayer. But when you pray, you shouldn't doubt. That's what James says. Because he says such a person... A doubting person is double-minded. Greek word means dipsychosis. They have two minds. And therefore they are unstable in all they do. They're limping between two opinions. Fix, I'll fix it my way or no, I'll trust the Lord. No, I'll fix that. No, uh, um, uh, unstable in all their ways. And those are portraits of our own hearts. Do you know how fickle your heart truly is? You probably don't. What was it then that made Hezekiah turn away 
from walking by faith and choose walking by sight. Because I think there's something here for us to take note of. Because if Hezekiah can be turned away from faith to walk by sight, something happened that triggered something in his heart. Do you know what the answer is? Flattery. Flattery. Look at verse 13, chapter 39 of, of Isaiah again. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. He sent him a letter and a gift. Notice how Hezekiah responded. He received the envoys gladly. And showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. What's going on here? Politically speaking, Sennacherib was the big bully boy on the block. And Hezekiah had prayed that Sennacherib would be dealt with, but he was also keeping his powder dry. He'd also tried a little, by the way, excursion to Egypt. That's one of the things that Sennacherib knew about. He said, you think you're trusting in Egypt. That's a splintering rod. It's like leaning on a bamboo stick. It will snap and stick in your hand. Don't take your weight. So here now is the next big guy coming on the scene and it's the, it's, the, it's the empire of Babylon. There's a rising star in the political arena at that particular time. So when this guy, the son of the present king of Babylon, sends Hezekiah a letter and a gift and turns up and goes, wow, flattery. Flattery, the letter from the new big kid on the block, and Hezekiah, like all of us to some degree or other, love the praise of men. We like to be liked, don't we? We do like to be liked. We like to be approved of. We like to be thought in with the in crowd. We like to be with our mates. We like to have their accolades. We do look for their approval. You see, this is a huge ego boost and a powerful adrenaline rush. Wow, these important people actually like me. Wow, let me show you what I've got. Let me join in the game. Flattery. We, 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 our egos love to be stroked. And he fell for it. The Bible has a lot to say about flattery. A lot to say about it. Let me just give you two verses which I think are um, <clears throat> representative of all of the verses that, where the Lord speaks to us about the danger of flattery. Psalm 12, verse 2. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips but harbor deception in their hearts. Hezekiah thought, these are good blokes. They like me. No, they don't. They don't like you. 
Proverbs 29.5. Those who flatter their neighbours are spreading nets for their feet. There's a huge irony here that is recorded for our learning. This isn't the only letter that Hezekiah received from a king. He received a letter from King Sennacherib of Assyria. And that letter caused him to earnestly seek the Lord in his temple. Chapter 36, 14 through 20. Where this letter from the king of Babylon caused him to swell his chest and show off. Didn't go to the Lord, didn't consult Isaiah, just went straight into, all these people are here to stroke my ego. Let me show you my toys. Do you really know how fickle and vulnerable your heart really is? No wonder the writer to the Proverbs tells us Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 4.23 Do you know how to guard your heart? The answer is by turning to and trusting in the king we all need. because faith-testing trials ultimately point us to the king we all need. That is how Isaiah has structured his message. Isaiah hasn't structured his message chronologically. He's constructed his message theologically and pastorally. And he's done so to drive his readers to that conclusion that there is a king that we all need. We said before that Isaiah 36, 39 is a meanwhile back at the ranch. It's a bridge between the prophecy that ends in 35, they will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy will crown their heads, and chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people. And we've seen that in this bridge, between 36 and 39, there are, it's all about faith-testing trials. We've seen last week that part one, faith-testing trials, drive us to our knees before the Lord and make us totally dependent upon him while it's going bad. Faith-testing trials of the second kind expose how fickle and faithless our hearts really are when it's going well. What's the point What's the point of this narrative? The point of this narrative is that Israel's hope, God's people's hope, were not to be found in this godly king who was just like the rest of us. (laughs) Which is why chapter 40 begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Because the next section of Isaiah, dealing with the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant points us to the king who became our suffering servant. Isaiah points us through this this narrative in real space-time history 
as he re rejoins his prophecy about the suffering servant who is the king we all need. And the king we all need, not Hezekiah, but who Hezekiah pointed to, the true king, the Lord Jesus himself, is the king we all need. Because he was not just brought near to the gates of death, like Hezekiah, but he actually went through the gates of death on behalf of his people, so we would never have to. What kept Hezekiah from going through the gates of death and entering the realm of the dead was that his son after son after son, the true King David, would go through the gates of death as his representative, as his regent, as his king, and suffer death for him and for all who would put their faith and trust in him. He's the king we all need who was not spared, like Hezekiah was, from the pit of destruction, but was literally, by God, thrown into the pit of destruction on the cross, so that he would put all your sins and mine forever behind his back. Not just the sins, the sins of the fickleness of your heart will be put behind God's back forever. And he's the king we all need because he rose triumphant over death and destruction and hell and despair on behalf of all of his people. If he, if we become faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot lie. You see, this passage tells us, does it not, that faith-testing trials come in all shapes and sizes, but the most deadly of them is when we're doing well. That's the place where we're most likely to flee and to follow our own hearts. Be aware of how fickle your hearts really are, because they also expose how fickle your heart and mine really is. But gloriously and wonderfully, they point us to the king we all need we dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly trust in Jesus name let's pray Father in heaven thank you for this passage that's recorded regarding your servant of old Hezekiah who was brought to breaking point and miraculously and wonderfully delivered and then left to see how his heart would really function when the heat was off. This is a portrait, a picture of our own hearts, Lord. We confess to you that we, we have our hearts are incredibly deceptive and foolishly proud. We pray, therefore, that by your sovereign grace you will capture our hearts by your great grace and love for us. Help us never, ever, ever lose sight of the cross. Help us to, to recognize how fickle and foolish we are and to always, always, always find ourselves at the foot of the cross because this passage not only points, exposes what our hearts are really like but points us wonderfully and beautifully to the king we all need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
we're going to conclude our time